1: I'm
2: India Borg in London. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday the 9th of July. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for joining us, India. As listeners will have figured out, Jeremy and Ito are not here this week. They're fine. They're just, they're just off. So India is with us. Thanks for being with me today, India. <laughs> Thanks for having me. We have a great guest today, and I'd like to spend the bulk of this podcast in discussion with him. But first... India and I are both going to share our moment from the past week in world affairs that, that stuck out to us. India, what in global news caught your eye this week? So, the image I can't
0: get out of my head is the ocean literally being on fire in the Gulf of Mexico after an underwater gas pipeline ruptured. And I, I feel like we're getting used to news of record breaking heat waves and ever more intense wildfires. And when they happen, they don't seem to move the political conversation forward much. But something felt a little bit different this time. The image is just so clearly unnatural. Plus, it kind of embodies the link to the oil and gas industry in such a direct way that it seemed to have cut through. And together with some undercover footage coming out of ExxonMobil's lobbying against climate legislation... There feels like there's been a bit of momentum created in Washington, and, and maybe this autumn, who knows, we might even see big oil executives pulled before Congress to to actually testify about the kind of information they've been putting out there.
2: I too hope that there is momentum in Washington toward uh, <laughs> toward meaningfully addressing the climate crisis. My moment from the past week is the death of Father Stanswamy. Um, Stanswamy was an 84-year-old human rights activist who was in jail under India's anti-terror laws and who passed away both fighting for bail and, and awaiting trial. His death has brought attention both to the plight of human rights activists in India, but also to the very nature of anti-terror laws, right? What is the reason for their existence and how, how are they used? Is it to protect the country or is it for political ends? With that, let's bring in our guest. Our guest this week is Tom Feiling. He is a reporter and writer in Japan, and he has been in Japan for the past four years. He also is the author of a piece on thenewstatesman.com this week called How the Olympics Have Thrown the Future of Japan's Prime Minister Into Doubt. Tom, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: It's a pleasure to be here, Emily. Thanks for having me on.
2: Before we get to the question at the heart of that piece, I was hoping for listeners who have not been following the run-up to the Olympic Games, which are supposed to start in two weeks, that you could maybe tell us a bit about the state of the state. Japan just declared a state of emergency and said that spectators would not be allowed at the Games. Can you tell us why why they did that, and what it means.
3: This is the fourth state of emergency they've declared. The number of cases in Tokyo is pretty low compared to the UK. I think it's about 2,000 cases nationwide per day. I think in Britain at the moment, it's about 26,000 cases a day. But The coronavirus, while it hasn't hit Japan as hard as it has a lot of other countries, it's been an ongoing concern for as long as it has been everywhere else. And the number of cases is going up. So it's always been feared that, you know, how many spectators would they allow in? They've decided to reimpose this state of emergency. And they've said that they're not going to let in any spectators at all.
2: And you had written in the piece, broadcasters are hopeful that t- Tokyo 2020 will prove to be the most profitable Olympics ever. But that calculation is at risk if the lack of spectators results in TV audiences li- losing interest. So, you know, we we kind of have a sense of what this will mean for for broadcasters and, and for people watching the games. What does it mean for Japan? What is Japan invested in these games? Mm. And, and what will it mean if, two things. One, what will it mean if the Olympics go ahead without spectators, right? If we have this kind of, <laughs> dystopian pandemic Olympics and, and what would it mean to call off the games?
3: Well, I think calling off the games is now not gonna happen. It's been mulled for ages, but they've been very bullheaded about this. There's just been so much money on the on the table. There wasn't really any way of delaying it another year, as I understand it. So it means we're gonna have a very quiet Olympics. There's not going to be anyone cheering. But from what as I gather it, that's needn't affect an athlete's performance. So it can still be an Olympic Games. On the question of what it means for Japan, I mean, the whole thing has just been buried under the pandemic. But I suppose before the pandemic came along, the idea of hosting the Olympics, Japan, I suppose, after the last 20, over the last 20 years, has been stagnant. The economy's been stagnant. It's been rather overshadowed by the rise of China and constantly threatened or perceived threat from North Korea. So hosting the Olympics was supposed to be just reminding people of Japan's existence, I think, as much as anything else.
0: I know a lot of people in Tokyo are very anti-games at the moment. Is that shared, do you think, outside the city?
3: Yes, I think so. I think that the general feeling is shortly after the pandemic started, they closed the borders and that's allowed them to keep The number of cases is relatively low, but this is a country on the edge of the world, and we're kind of back into a familiar scenario of the outside world just appearing as a threat. In this case, a threat of contagion, a a threat of catching this dreaded disease. Instead of Japan opening its arms to the world and this being a boost to tourism, the whole thing is becoming a kind of fear of the outside world, kind of story so it's going back a long way in Japan's history and not what anyone wanted
0: we've actually published another article this week on australia who similarly kind of shut its borders and tried tried to shut itself off to the world and actually that may have ad- actually adversely affected kind of how it's been tackling the vaccinations etc within the country and now it's it's experiencing a kind of surge and, and is, is at risk and I just wondered more broadly if you could speak about how Japan's been handling the Covid challenge apart from closing its borders.
3: They've allowed some people in during that time but certainly none of the tourists and Japan was becoming a real tourism hotspot that was one of the things that was rescuing the economy one of the few bright spots was suddenly japan was affordable and an awful lot of people were coming on holiday to to japan and a lot of chinese tourists as well all of that has been put on hold since the pandemic started they they had a severe lockdown what you know what looked like a serious lockdown in the spring last year and then they've had that lasted about a month they've just announced the fourth state of emergency but they they're becoming less and less Emergency, like
0: yes, I noticed that it seems you can still go to restaurants, and it, it seems very different from the kind of lockdowns we've been experiencing in the UK, for instance.
3: Yes, well, on the one hand, everyone's very nervous about coronavirus. On the other hand, they're far less likely than in the UK to actually know anyone who's had it, or let alone died from it. So most people have just donned the face masks and gone about their day-to-day business, which Tokyo is a crowded city. Compared to the UK, it's striking how crowded the place remains. The trains remain crowded. There hasn't been the shift to working from home to the same extent as there has been elsewhere until they reimposed what is now the fourth state of emergency. The shops were full. Everyone was shopping, albeit while wearing face masks. So I think there's a lot of faith put in face masks, perhaps misplaced. And also, the government's identified that to tackle the virus here, the virus is being spread in the evenings when people start drinking in all these cosy drinking dens. You know, Japan is not a country full of huge pubs, let alone beer gardens. It's small drinkeries where you drink with your close friends or friends from work, and they people tend to take off their face masks after a few drinks, they're with people they work with, and... And this is how it's spreading. I don't know how seriously people are t- taking that. I've seen a lot of places have stayed open despite the state of emergency. You know, alcohol is still being served discreetly. On the surface, it all looks like everyone's scared of coronavirus and is observing this very strict lockdown. In reality, I think that 2,000 cases a day is not enough to scare people sufficiently for them to. To do what they did at the very beginning which was stay home and not go anyway
2: before we get to the the political component i, I do want to ask maybe a naive question which is everybody knew that the olympics that the games were coming everybody knew when the games were why did the vaccination rate stay so low for so long was it you know was it that there just weren't vaccines which seems like the world's folly is, is it that there there you know people were vaccine hesitant was it the rollout what what
3: happened there? No clear cut single answer. I've heard various things. That for the, there hasn't been a Japanese vaccine. I think Japan has had bad experiences developing vaccines in the past, so there isn't a domestic vaccine. The testing regime before approving vaccines takes a long time. The health authorities are very cautious in authorising new vaccines And there's a lot of scepticism about possible side effects to the imported vaccines. I think there's, to a certain extent, the the government didn't prioritise it. I mean, this is why Suga is uh, getting hammered in the polls. The government didn't handle it well. It was seen as being inept, slow, not getting vaccines in quick enough, approving them fast enough, contradictory lockdown information and so on.
2: So you just mentioned that Suga, the prime minister, is getting hammered in the polls. Can you tell us a bit about between him coming to office and now how he's been perceived, how he's been doing, and to get to the heart of the, the of your piece, how the Olympics have, have thrown him for a loop?
3: Mm. Well, he came to office in September last year after Shinzo Abe had to resign on health He was popular at first. I think his image management team put out a lot of stories to the press about what a regular kind of guy he was. I think until then, he's been Abe's chief cabinet secretary since 2012. So he's a backroom operator. He's regarded as someone who has can control the bureaucracy, can manage the bureaucracy in Japan. It's famously labyrinth in bureaucracy. As cabinet secretary, he was responsible for handling the press and was pretty monosyllabic and tight lipped. So he's a good backroom operator. I think he had very good relations with Abe. So Abe kind of anointed him as his successor, but he doesn't have a lot of support from the powerful factions in the party but he got off to a good start he was popular you know they started everyone found out that he loves pancakes and he does sit ups all the time and his dad was a strawberry farmer, so suddenly you have all these personal details that were all quite charming and but he's he's just got rather uncharismatic bearing about him, and he hasn't done much to really win hearts and minds. The main thing he's been critiqued for is his response to the pandemic. People want the economy to get back on its feet. But he—he's ba- his economic policies are basically carry on what Abe was doing with, you know, abenomics as they call it. A great frustration
2: for many Americans during 2020 was the Trump administration wanted the economy to open again and for, for people to get back to work. And there was this refusal or this inability or whatever you want to call it to grasp that that could not happen until the pandemic was under control. Is there a similar dynamic at play or is it a different phenomenon?
3: Yeah, yeah. I think it's the same dynamic everywhere, isn't it? You know, there's a lot of people losing money. The public is frightened of the virus and big business and small businesses are losing money hand over fist. So all politicians, including Suga, they're being pulled in each direction. I think Suga is seen as, you know, being a bit too... He's been listening to big business, which is not really surprising. It's a quite a, a cosy relationship between big business and the LDP in Japan. And the public is worried. So yes, a similar pattern at work here.
0: I'm really interested in the kind of changing story that the Japanese government and people have been hoping these games might tell about Japan. And obviously, so Suga came to power during the pandemic. So maybe his, the vision under him of like what story the kind of opening ceremony might tell about Japan and the world is maybe a little different to what it was previously under Abe, and and also I'm kind of interested. I don't know if you know much about the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo, which I think were the first time they were ever held in Asia, and obviously relatively soon after the World War II and the bombing of Japan. Yeah, I'm just kind of interested in what these games were meant to say mm. and what they might say now
3: like i said earlier it's it's partly just reminding the world of japan's existence i think there's been a lot of emphasis on inclusivity and getting women and minorities more involved and a recognition of women and minorities and sustainability
0: yes i remember some like big architectural that the architecture involved is very green isn't it i think
3: the architecture involved is supposed to be very green, <laughs> but there, oh right,
0: okay. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. There, 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 there was a scandal when they discovered that, in fact, some of the the, the the national stadium, which a new national stadium, it's got a lot of wood in it, a lot of sort of exposed wood. It looks very nice and very twenty first century and relatively modest compared to you know the. Huge bird's nest in Beijing. It was all supposed to be a to show a love of wood, and I suppose you know hint at Japan's long relation. You know, it's, it's craftsmanship in wood, but a lot of it did come from protected rainforests in Borneo.
0: Oh no, really? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh my, my goodness! goodness. Yeah,
3: sorry about that.
0: Honestly, <laughs> how did they? How did how did that happen? <laughs>
3: <laughs> but yes, yeah, so if you think about what the nineteen sixty four Olympics. You know, that was about Japan being back on the world stage. It was about sort of being under the protective umbrella of the United States. It was Japan had transformed itself and had become, I think, you know, I've looked into this and I think a lot of Westerners, when they came to Japan in 1964, they, they put the Shinkansen, the bullet train, into use that year as well. So that was something they could show, which, you know, it must have blown people's minds. It was the, by far and away the most advanced train the world had ever seen. This time around, I don't think Japan has any sort of wonderful technological advances to boast of uh, on that scale.
0: I'm just so intrigued to see what the opening ceremony does because obviously mm. whatever they wanted it to say before the pandemic you imagine it will need to be revised in light of it and 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 it could be a i mean who knows it's like in obviously it's a different scenario but in the 2012 olympics in the uk people the general mood was quite down on the idea of the olympics until the opening ceremony and until they begun. and then the mood did a complete about turn and and people completely felt really triumphant about it which was lovely to see obviously there wasn't a pandemic and threat to people's lives involved so this is a a very different context but i i'm just intrigued to see whether the olympics can overcome the threats and and still be a kind of symbol of of togetherness in a in a tricky time
3: yeah that was i think the idea was when they postponed it for a year was that by this time we the world would have overcome the, the virus and it would be a celebration of, you know, triumph in the face of adversity, which is a very Japanese theme, you know, uh, you know, keep struggling on and you'll get there in the end. But it's a little bit too early, isn't it? In fact, it's much too early to be celebrating the end of it. And in Japan's case, it's, it's, it's too soon even to be celebrating, you know, a mass vaccination campaign. But I think, you know, when you mentioned London 2012, I don't know about Olympics before that, but certainly with London 2012, even people who weren't particularly interested in athletics or the other sports, it became a kind of showcase. And a lot of people and the press got excited about this is how we can present a public face to the world. And it becomes a huge marketing exercise for the country. I don't know if Japan has invested a lot of time and energy in the opening ceremony. I mean, there won't be anyone actually watching it in the national stadium. Uh, You know, given the circumstances, I don't know what they can how triumphant or celebratory they can be but as I mentioned earlier tourism has become a big part of the Japanese economy a lot of people would love to come to Japan on holiday Uh, the Olympics would have been a a very good way of of showing people and it would have just worked as a tourism exercise you know you'd have had a lot of programs on TV about different aspects of Japan and people would be saying oh let's go there next year you know, it it would have been very good for Japanese tourism. Those TV programs aren't going to go out, and there won't be the same the same vibe at all, inviting people in. We'll see how it's remembered. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And,
2: and the story and and the story that it tells, right, about the country, about the people, and about about the Olympics.
3: When you said the Olympics were first held in an Asian country in 1964, which is true, but there, there's the forgotten, the Phantom Olympics of 1940. Tokyo was supposed to host the Olympics in 1940. It's very interesting to look into it because then too, they were hoping to boost tourism and to present a positive face to Japan to the outside world. They had quite similar aims, But of course, it was also for domestic consumption in showing a lot of brave sporting heroes because Japan was at war in Manchuria at the time. And it was that war, they simply couldn't spare the resources to build a national stadium. So they pulled out three years, I think it was before 1940. Wherever you are in the world,
2: if you're interested in global
3: affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe.
2: That's just $2 a week in America.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort.
4: Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow Electoral Dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So we are going to turn now to a section that we like to call... You Ask Us. Great job, India. <laughs> Our question comes to us from Twitter. Uh, as a reminder, if you do not want to email us at podcast at uk, you can just tweet at us and we'll consider the questions there too. This question comes from Grant and it is, would breaking up the games, i.e., some events in Asia, some in Europe, et cetera, limit the issue with autocrats hosting and the negative impacts on locals? Obviously, just me interjecting here, these are two separate issues. So, you know, in Japan's case, this is not an autocratic country, but locals are negatively impacted. Okay, back to the question Could that even happen given the money sloshing around the IOC?
3: Hmm. it's interesting isn't it when you look at the euros the the football championships Mm -hmm. they've spread it over different countries and the previous world cup was spread over different countries there hasn't been any move to do that with the olympics i think before the virus came along you know underneath the all the big celebrations about the olympics there are serious questions to ask about the future of the olympics Um, and how much benefit they really are to their host cities. There were a lot of complaints about corruption in the run-up to Tokyo. There's been scandals about people displaced to make way for the new buildings for the Olympics.
2: Yeah, there was a story about a family that had been displaced in the last Olympics, and now, again, this Olympics.
3: A lot of scandals about different, very old Olympic officials in Japan, Uh, saying that women talk too much and hold up meetings. So a general sense that the Olympic family is a bit fuddy-duddy and old-fashioned generally. The broader question of what use is the Olympics to the host city? When Ken Livingstone, I think he won the bid for London 2012, he said we only did this to revitalise the East End of London. I mean, in the Tokyo case, it's costing Japan $10 billion. They're not revitalizing any neighborhoods. I don't know what, you know, it was a a huge sum of money coming out of the public purse to what public benefit, I'm not sure, except perhaps to boost tourism.
2: There's a debate here in the United States now about what to do about the next Olympics in 2022, which will be held in China, and whether or not they should be boycotted. I I don't know if you have any thoughts on this but a should countries with negative human rights records mm. and however you define those get to host the Olympics and b if they do should countries boycott or should they you know should they go and and represent the flag to the to the world and
3: etc. There's always accusations of double standards aren't there I mean for everyone who accuses of course. The, the Chinese will accuse the Americans of various human rights scandals um, yes they do and the IOC has always tried to insist that the games are non-political I don't know the ins and outs well enough to know how people justified the boycotting of previous Olympics if sport is supposed to be apolitical. But I think if you're going to start boycotting Olympics on human rights grounds, you know, you can see this with with sanctions regimes around the world, that the list of people you can sanction is very long and who ultimately gets sanctioned rather depends on who has the most economic clout. In this case, you know, the the White House.
2: Thank you to all of you who sent in your questions. Again, you can email them to us at podcast at newstatesman.co.uk or just tweet us and we will consider them for incorporation. With that, we turn to our very last segment in which we all say what we will be looking to in the week ahead. Tom as you are our guest we will start with you.
3: I'm very interested to know who killed the uh, president of Haiti. He was assassinated a few days ago. No one see it doesn't seem at all clear who was behind the killing but it's thrown a country that's you know been very unstable a, a byword for political instability, chaos and poverty into even more of the same by the looks Okay, so
2: Tom took mine, but so I will adapt what I was going to say, which is that yes, President Moïse was assassinated this week, various people have been arrested on suspicion of being involved in the assassination. What I will be watching is how the rest of the Western Hemisphere, and in particular, the United States responds or doesn't. I think it's very easy for Americans to say, oh, you know, Haiti, there's so much poverty, there's so much violence, there's so much destruction. But all of that is deeply, deeply entangled with US history, right? And with our own historic fear of this country that established itself by liberating itself from enslavement and by the invasion of Haiti, with, with bending Haiti to Haiti's economy to serve our own capitalistic interests with decimating Haiti's agricultural sector, et cetera, et cetera. So, and I'm not saying that, you know, the U.S. should get involved and, and find out who did this. What I am saying is that I think that, that the United States should be careful and considered in how it responds and also, you know, perhaps take some time to reflect on our own history and indeed present. Uh, geopolitically speaking. And India, what will you be looking ahead to?
0: I'm waiting for next Friday, which is the opening of UNESCO's World Heritage Committee session. And that's where they review how World Heritage Sites are getting on. And the Australian government has got very upset because a draft report has suggested that the Great Barrier Reef should be listed as in danger, as climate change is posing such a huge threat to its health. And the report wants the government's reef action plan to, to be brought in line with the Paris Agreement commitments. But Australia doesn't think addressing climate change should be its responsibility alone. It claims it's a a problem that crosses borders. And while that's true, it's also true Australia is not pulling its weight. It's showing no intention of adopting a net zero emissions target and is continuing to support its oil and gas industries. So it will be really interesting. It's a kind of, in some ways, a side story to the, the climate talks that are happening later this year. But, but what gets decided about the Great Barrier Reef actually could really set the tone in, in quite a lot of ways about how the world sees our collective responsibility for
2: natural assets. With that, all that is left is for us to thank Tom Filing for joining us today. Tom, thank you so much for being with us.
3: So, yeah, it's been very, very nice to to be on the program. Thanks for having me.
2: And I will also thank India for being a great guest host. Thank you, India. <laughs> oh, thanks, Emily. And Tom. As a reminder, there is a newsletter component to the World Review. It's free and you can subscribe at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please, as I say every week, tell your friends, tell your haters, tell your cousins, tell old schoolmates and like subscribe and leave a nice review our producer has been adrian bradley thank you for listening and until next week